evangelical Christian, and I want you to become one too. How do you think that sentence would go over on campus? Or at the coffee shop, or on the hiking trail? I'm an evangelical Christian, I want you to be one too. What obstacles and objections do you anticipate might come up if you said that? You know, I've worked on and thought about typical objections that tend to come up to the faith and what you can say about them, the problem of suffering, the exclusivity of Christianity, the reliability of the scriptures, um, those kind of things. But nowadays, I think if you told somebody I'm an evangelical Christian and I want you to be one too, you'd go through a long list of hurdles before anybody ever got through the problem of suffering or the reliability of the Gospels. This is what I think most of the, some of those objections would be. Um, eh, Christians are mean. They're judgmental. Right? Um, they want to force their morality on other people. And they're selectively moral. Right? Like they, they want to boss other people around morally, but aren't very rigorous morally themselves. For instance, they told us about sexual ethics but the statistics are they look at just as much porn and have just as many divorces and have and pay for just as many abortions as anybody else does. But they scold us. And they um, might not know this language, but they say they, they look at the specs in other people's eyes and don't look at the logs in their own eye. Like, I would expect you're an evangelical Christian that your church is way more likely to put out a paper about the dangers of critical race theory than it is to spend any time repenting of your racism uh, even though your institutions have been so foundational to race prejudice and cruelty in our nation's history. So I'm less interested in becoming an evangelical Christian. Also, evangelical Christians seem to be beholden to a political tribe and one that I find in many ways objectionable. And that's troubling to me. They, evangelicals seem to be more committed to guns than they are to creeds. And that's weird to me. Seems like they're mean to women. Seems like the most reliable knee-jerk support for any war at all will come from evangelical Christians. Um, for a while it seemed like they cared more about masks than about neighbors. They seemed nationalistic and xenophobic, anti-science, and really sure that they're voting exactly like Jesus would when the whole African-American church that believes the same things they do votes opposite. How are you feeling so far? <laughs> if you're anything like me, just writing this down, I was like, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. What about, what about, what about, what about, what about? And what do you expect? I mean, like, they hated Jesus, you're going to hate me too, right? And, um, you know, I'm not like that. That's like an exaggeration. That's not all of us. And whatever else you might think of defensively, and I'd be pretty happy to sit with you for a long time and think up defensive things to say. Um, the problem is this, is that the things that the culture notices about us and accuses us of are the very things that Jesus 
and this passage said were going to be problems for us. Our moralism and our nationalism. And so before we enjoy our justifications and excuses that I'll be happy again to make with you, let's think about it a little bit. Um, how do we get this reputation? Uh, what, what might make a difference in this reputation that we have in the world? I'll tell you now, I hope you know me enough to know, I'm not, I'm not saying any of this to scold. Um, I may be mentioning your sins, but I am for certain sure mentioning mine. So um, I want us to dig in, look at this, think about it, try to open our minds and hearts to the Lord with what he says here. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Father, please help us. We, we hate to um, be a foul odor for people who are trying to come to faith in you and consider your claims. And we hate to be disloyal to you. We hate to be um, have hearts that aren't aligned to you. And we know we need your help. So would you please come help us as we listen to what your son has said to us and uh, lead us in his ways. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to read all of the text that you printed there. You can like read the parts I don't read during the slow parts of the sermon or something. But um, I, want, I put it all in there because I want to frame what we're looking at. We're going to look at the middle section of what he says here. But how this passage works is Jesus is talking to people who he says, like in our Old Testament reading today, are people who um, have ears but are deaf and who have eyes but are blind. People who ought to be spiritually perceptive who aren't. And the, the passage is bracketed by a, a miracle of hearing where a deaf person is healed and a miracle of seeing where a blind person is healed. And both of them are sort of gradually healed more so than usual in what Jesus does. In between that, you have the feeding of the 4,000, um, which is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. But afterwards, the disciples become very confused by something Jesus says uh, in relation to the feeding of the 4,000. So with that set up, we're going to read verse 11 to 21. Uh, it's what Jesus has encountered with the religious leaders was and then with his disciples. So read with the beginning in chapter 8, verse 11, on the top of the second page. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Now, they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven... Uh, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Okay, beware and watch out. Jesus says to his disciples, for what? The yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. So y'all watch out for that, okay? Those are a little complicated to understand. The disciples didn't understand them at first either, so that uh, gives us a little cover. Um, but it seems pretty important. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And he says leaven or yeast. And what do you know about yeast? Besides that you can get it in the store now and they couldn't. Um, it's, it's hidden. You tend to be unaware of it. It's like, here's a problem that you're probably going to face, but you're not going to feel it very much yourself. Other people will probably notice it in you more than you'll notice it in yourself. It's hidden, it's subversive, it spreads, and um, affects everything. Um, but it's a weird kind of thing morally. So it's like, if you're affected by, by the yeast of the Pharisees or of Herod, which we'll talk about in a minute, you're not going to get in trouble at church. Nobody's going to say, whew, we've had a scandal in our church. Someone's been affected by the yeast of the Pharisees. We're going to have to have an ecclesiastical trial to redress this. That's not going to happen. It's just going to be something that hurts you and hurts uh, the reputation of Jesus with the people around you. Um, it's the kind of thing that can run like yeast through a whole church and make us sterile. Um, but it's weird because you can't see it and you usually don't know. It's like bad breath. You know? You wish you knew when you had bad breath, but you don't. The people around you, they know. Right? So, um, let's talk about what these are. At root... The yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod are proud ways that we deny our need for God's grace. Proud ways that we use to deny our need for God's grace. And we'll come back and talk about that as we go through. First, the yeast of the Pharisees, which basically is moralism. Right? It's moralism. Um, Pharisees are religious conservatives. They're basically as much like us as I know you could have a correlate. Um, the people have said, you know, we see a lot of drift in the church and in the world, and we're going to be the ones who hold the line and refuse to drift along with the culture. And as the church wants to mimic and imitate the culture, we're going to stand and be true to what Jesus has said, um, even at great cost to ourselves. Pharisees did the very same thing. You remember the Sadducees were more of those who were uh, complicit and uh, aligned with the culture and sort of willing to wiggle on doctrinal things if they were unpleasant. Uh, not Pharisees. They were going to hold the line and had constant conflict with Jesus. Which feels unfair a little bit. Like they're trying hard. They're, they're enduring costs to be faithful to Jesus, to hold the line. Um, and yet... Constantly, They bump up against Jesus and have conflict with him. It says in verse 11, they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The word test has come up before the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was taken out into the wilderness after his baptism to be tested by the devil. Same word, same idea. Um, They're there to test him. Tempt him. Their temptation to him is very much like the devil's temptation to him, which was, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and do a dramatic sign that will cause everyone to know and believe 
that you're the Messiah. They're saying, we want to see a sign from you to prove you're the Messiah. And I don't know, I'm more snarky than Jesus, but I would have said, did you see the 4,000 just now? <laughs> the deaf guy? That I just, what do you mean you need a sign? Like, um, there are plenty of signs. But he's saying, basically, your, your desire for some sort of spectacular sign is inappropriate. And he's irritated that they ask him this and for the reasons that they do. Their idea of the Messiah was going to be the way Jesus is going to fix the world, or Messiah, if it were really him, was going to fix the world, is uh, get everybody to do what they're supposed to do, for at least for a while. If just for one day, everyone would keep Torah. All of Israel would keep Torah, or if maybe for a week or a month, we were actually faithful to God, then the Messiah could come, and he would establish righteousness in the world and restore us to our place. That, that's how our hope is going to be realized, and when that Messiah comes, he'll congratulate us because it's like, yeah, we've been doing it. We finally got everybody else to, to become compliant and go along with it and do what they're supposed to do. And so now, you know, you're welcome for us you know, setting this up for you. And that's not at all what Jesus came to do. And he wasn't willing to be part of that kind of a plan. Um, he came because they needed to be rescued from their moral and spiritual bankruptcy, which they did not believe they had, Right? So they pushed back against him, and Jesus called them hypocrites. Not, not because they were insincere. They were sincere, as far as they knew themselves to be sincere. Um, but they're blindingly self-justifying. Always running a soundtrack in their heads of why I'm okay and why other people are doing it wrong. Why I'm okay and why they're doing it wrong. And this seems to be constantly their experience. People who, Jesus said, don't see logs in their own eyes, but are fierce about the specks in other people's eyes. That's how he described them. And they were mean, right? They were condescending and mean. They repelled people who were broken, repelled people who were in need. Suspicious and critical. They would have said, we have the gift of discernment, right? But basically... Every meeting they walked into that they weren't leading, they were there uh, to try to catch what's wrong, right? We had kids that came from a Christian college when I lived in Portland. And when all of the churches said this, whenever one of the kids from that school came to church, they were just there with a gotcha card. You know, we're going we're gonna to fight what you did wrong and tell you. And this is sort of what the Pharisees felt all the time, hypercritical with a tremendous need to be right. Got to be right. My wife has identified this in some people in our home. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, and the effect on the group when people have the leaven of the Pharisees and are moralistic in this way is divisive. They bite and devour each other. Uh, always looking to scold, always looking uh, to condemn. And what moralism is, is a proud refusal of grace. Right, Jesus came to offer grace to those who need it. And moralism says, I would like another plan, another set of terms for dealing with God than His grace alone. I don't want to bring nothing to the negotiation with empty hands. Uh, I want to bring all that I have done and all that I am. I want to bring my good heart and my religious service and my 
sacrificial giving and my service at the church and my being right thinking about cultural issues. I want to bring all of that to the table and then maybe whatever's lacking in me, I'll be willing to accept from God's grace. But Jesus isn't uh, amenable to terms like that. This week is our denominational meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm not going. Um, sorry, you know, you, you won't have a big voice there. Um, but it probably wouldn't be that helpful a voice anyway. Our, our denomination was formed in early 70s. And we came out of a church connection that we felt like was becoming overly compromised with the culture at the time. Uh, it's the larger and still is the larger Presbyterian church. And we decided, it's a little before my time, but we decided that uh, faithfulness to Jesus required that we needed to come out and start something new. And a good argument to be made for that. I don't know if that's the right or wrong call. I'm glad it wasn't my call to have to make. But um, when you come out of a loved church connection because it went off the rails in the left ditch, you tend to have a fool me twice, shame on me attitude from then on. Like, I don't know all the ways I might become unfaithful, but I am not going back into the left ditch, right? You know, that's not going to happen to me. Uh, there may be a ditch on the right. I've heard maybe there is. But I'm not going into the left ditch, right? And that has been the ethos of our denomination. Uh, we, of course, downplayed the idea that uh, political tribalism and racism had anything to do with why we were coming out of the larger connection. Uh, it would be hard historically to argue that it didn't. Uh, but we say, no, we were holding the line of faithfulness to Jesus. And in a lot of ways, I think, were, for which I'm very thankful. But we have now very strong fences on the left side uh, to guard us from making the same compromised errors that were made in our former church. Um, but what Jesus says here when he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, is there's a ditch over there too. And you better beware of it and watch out. Because it'll work on you like yeast. You know, you won't know, probably, when you're drifting over into that ditch. There aren't any of those bumpy noises, things on the side of the road that tell you you're, you're over the line. Uh, you'll just kind of wander over there without meaning to, without knowing it. And when he talked to the people who were in the right-hand ditch, which was the Pharisees in this situation, I mean, they weren't compromisers, but they were in the ditch. He didn't say, you know, the Pharisees are wrong on points uh, 2, 4, and 7C, and therefore uh, they need to be uh, corrected on these things. He said very generalized things about them, like, yeah, they're, they care about the law of Moses. They sit in the seat of Moses. So, so listen to what they say, but don't be like them. Don't be like them. And he said things like, yeah, um, you'll know them by their fruit. Which is weird. If someone says, I'm going to have a doctrinal uh, error, I'm going to deny the, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, we have a trial. And charge them and stop them or fix them you know, somehow. But if somebody's judgmental, we don't have any apparatus to deal with that. 
Jesus just says, beware and watch out. And so it's a difficult situation for us to be in, and we're prone to the same errors that Pharisees were prone to. And that's why Jesus told his disciples who want to be faithful to him, you need to watch out for this. You need to beware. This is going to be your problem. And if you're not rigorous about it, it's going to undo you. And so that's what he tells them. Um, it's really kind of on us to self-police, and maybe if you've got a really good friend, you know, you can help each other a little bit with this. But the way you watch out for the dangers on the right is that you pretty regularly repent of your self-righteous pride. Uh, you stop the mental soundtrack in your head about how I'm doing it right and those people are doing it wrong that runs all the time. And you stop and you come to church and confess your sins, not theirs, and things like that. You, you push back and say, I don't want to have a proud refusal of the grace of God because of my morality and religious service. I'm empty-handed before God. And what I have from him is all gift. So, you know, and the, the warning signs that you can kind of have in, in your life if you're getting over toward that ditch is a lack of compassion for people. Or if you look at people despisingly rather than like Jesus did with compassion, seeing people, even if they're very wrong, as sheep without a shepherd, who are people like you, who are as blind as you are, Except, what did our New Testament reading say? Uh, God has caused the light of the knowledge of Jesus to shine in our hearts. He didn't say you were the perceptive ones that believe in Jesus. He says you are as blind as anybody. If you trust in Jesus, it's a gift. So don't look at people who are a mess and think you're better or different than them. If you find yourself doing that, it's scary. It's the, it's the noise on the side of the road that you're getting towards the ditch. So, um, yeah. Jesus went to the cross uh, because your moralistic, snarky, condescending, judgmental pastor uh, needed his sins forgiven. And I don't want us to be a church that becomes like that. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. Then there's the leaven of Herod. I had to look that up. (laughs) And I didn't agree with what most people said about it. There's a chance I could be wrong about this. You know. Small chance. <laughs> but, uh, Herod. Like when Matthew talks about this, he doesn't mention the leaven of Herod. The leaven of Herod is nationalism. Right? Herod was the king of the Jews, the Ursats, king of the Jews. Um, he wasn't good. They knew he was like he he buttered up the believers, you know, with what he said. But he was immoral, you know, he, he had had this scandalous marriage, you know, to his brother and his wife and caused these divorces and things. And, you know, John the Baptist was like, yeah, yeah, Mr. King of the Jews over here, he's not the real king of the Jews. Um, look, look at his marriage. This isn't, that ain't him. And uh, Herod modestly deferred and said, you're, you're right, didn't he? Now, he beheaded John the Baptist. Um, He's not the real king. But he fixed up the temple. Like really fixed up the temple. Like they said, you don't know what architecture is if you haven't seen Herod's rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. 
And so the people there who were thinking, man, the glory days for us nationally were when the temple was there, when David was the king. God was with us. He dwelt in the temple. The glory of God came down on the temple, you remember? And then in Ezekiel, the glory of God went up from the temple and it was called Ichabod. The glory has departed. But if we get the temple back right, and if we get our nation back right, then God can come back to us. The Messiah can come and we'll be okay. So the hope was, I know Herod, mm, yeah, he ain't great. Like, I'm not pretending he's the best Jew among us, but like, he's for us. He's for our political project. And maybe like his successor will be better. Like, you know, the dynasty of Herod will be better. And maybe we can get where we need to go that way. And uh, they became politically co-opted by Herod. So the Herodians were the nationalist party in Israel. And the yeast of Herod is uh, religious nationalism. And Jesus says, that's going to be a problem for you. You need to beware and watch out because religious nationalism will be a problem for you. And like moralism... It is a proud refusal of the grace of God. You're looking for a political solution to a problem that does not have a political solution. Um, what you need is a Savior to come and rescue you and live and die for you, not to promote your agenda, not to compliment, congratulate, and encourage the people on your side as opposed to the other side. That's not how my kingdom comes. The problems and brokenness are too deep for that. You need a Savior to come and live and die for you. Not to, not to promote your agenda. And so he pushes back on them. We've seen an ugly example of this in National Socialism uh, when the German church was, for the most part, very appreciative of the, uh, the new conservative, uh, culturally conservative regime that came in with the National Socialists. They were in favor of a lot of things the church was in favor of socially and culturally. And became co-opted by it. Uh, they got drawn up into what was called the German Christian movement. And many of the churches um, were a part of the German Christian movement. Where there was a blending and mixing of their patriotic zeal and their commitment to Jesus. And creepiest picture uh, I've seen with regard to this is uh, a German Christian church where the parents over the Lord's table, which is the cloth for you Baptists like me, um, was the national flag of National Socialism, which was the swastika, the paramount on the Lord's table. It's made me look at national flags in church really different ever since I saw that picture. Hmm. Um, but the church has become co-opted by a political agenda and by political hopes that are different from hope in Jesus, who has a whole different kingdom than the kingdom of this world and this age, who has a rival kingdom to all the Babylons that rise up on earth in human history, including the one in Germany and including the one here. We're part of a different kingdom. And to indulge in nationalism is a proud refusal of the grace of God. Jesus said, watch out. This is your problem, too. 
in Germany, uh, the Confessing Church rose up and they wrote something called the Barman Declaration. And it said basically, Jesus and his church can't be co-opted into any social or political movement. And one of the phrases in that Barman Declaration that's rightly famous says, we reject the false doctrine as though the church in human arrogance could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of any arbitrarily chosen desires, purposes, and plans. Bonhoeffer and Bart were both uh, very big parts of the confessing church movement, which was faithfulness uh, when the church had fallen into the yeast of Herod. And thank God for that. Um, our calling as citizens, as Christians who are citizens of the nations, is not to pick the right tribe, the one that Jesus likes the best. <laughs> it's to be faithful to our king and good citizens of his kingdom. To love and have compassion on people here as best we can in his name. Uh, but our political allegiance is in Jesus' kingdom. And the use of Herod pulls us in a different direction. Now we've seen problems with this. We've sure been accused of it a lot in recent days. Um, and you see exaggerated things when someone sets up a gallows uh, outside the Capitol and goes in to try to kill the vice president, uh, who is a Christian, in the name of Jesus. You think, what? They may be taken or a little too far there, right? You say, okay, there's a problem with nationalism with some crazy people. But there's also a problem with the leaven of Herod for more normal people who, like in the hearings last week I heard, speak about the Constitution as if it were sacred. Right? Sacred? Good. <laughs> but not sacred. And when we think that way, the leaven of Herod comes to us. Also, when our families experience our red-faced incivility, when we talk to them about politics like our political positions matter more than our love for them. You know, hypothetically speaking. <laughs> um, I'm the one that the hostess always says, now let's change the subject for a minute while we're all having our dinner. <laughs> but it's the leaven of Herod that brings up that anger and that idolatry uh, that's based on something other than our identity in Jesus Christ. It's when we have an identity that's based on something cultural or national that we have prized highly. So, leaven of Herod, political co-option and nationalism. It's a desire to have the kingdom on our own terms. That what Jesus really needs to do in the world is go fix them. And Jesus very clearly came into the world to fix you and me. And uh, until we feel that, we feel like we need fixing as much as those despicable people need fixing then the leaven of Herod is a danger to us. Always will be. So these are denials of God's grace. Um, what, do we, what do we say when we come to church? And what ought we say? We say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And that is the place of safety from the yeast of the Pharisees and of the yeast of Herod. Nothing in my hands I bring. Not my tithing. Not my sacrifices, uh, not being a great responsible citizen, not being a wonderful father or mother, not having a great work ethic, 
not having family values, not having right opinions, not voting the right way. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross and claim. And until we get all of these things knocked out of our hands, and repeatedly knocked out of our hands, then we're prone to the proud denial of God's grace. Where we say, something in my hands I bring. Well, I mean, more than him. <laughs> I mean, I got something in my hands to bring. I'm not a monster, right? I got something. Jesus says, beware of the light. Nothing in our hands I bring. You know, we're never going to have compassion for our political enemies, the people on the other side of the tribe. We're never going to look at them with respect, listen to them, be civil to them, um, love them, as long as we've got something in our hands that we're proud of, that we're holding on to instead of the grace of Jesus. It won't happen. That's, that's our only hope here. Uh, because only Jesus can unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes. Saying, uh, as long as you've got stuff in your hands, you're going to be deaf and you're going to be blind just as much as those people I just healed. What you need is the grace of Jesus. Let's pray.